0: turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter has often been described as a treatise on Christian suffering in the midst of religious persecution. I think of the song that they just sang of counting the cost. And we read the words of Jesus telling us to count the cost. We read the words of Jesus telling us to take up the cross. We ask ourselves the question Am I willing to be spent for Christ, my Lord? Do we count the cost? We sing in the song, It may cost me suffering in the service of my King. It may be a lonely path I have to trod. But to deeply know my Lord will be my great reward. I will gladly give my all I've counted the cost Lord Jesus may this indeed truly be the sentiment of our hearts and sincerity to have counted the cost and to know that in your service as your witnesses as your ambassadors This is a worthy calling, and it is worth the cost. And may it, Lord, truly be from our hearts said that you in your sufficiency and to deeply know you will be our reward. Dear Holy Spirit, I pray that you will now help us, help us to understand your word Help us to apply your word and help us to live. Live according to your word. Great God, there are so many distractions in our lives, in our minds, in the world around us. This world, the devil, and even our own flesh desires to be amused. Desires to be taken out of the war. But Lord, may we recognize that we're in this and it is a struggle and it is a fight. And even in our ease, help us, Father, for in some ways the struggle is greater. For we become complacent and we lose track of the priority and the importance of you being our great reward, of knowing you deeply and knowing your word. Lord, I pray that as we look now to this letter in 1 Peter, that your spirit would move among us and teach us. We need you. Help me as I speak. Help me to be concise. Help me and fill me with your spirit, I pray. In your name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus spoke of the day when he is coming back and he gave the command to watch. The night he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he called to his disciples to join him to watch and to pray. And we too, as we anticipate his return, are called and commanded to watch and pray. Do you know we know what even that means? Do we apply it and live it truly and really? As I shared in my prayer in seeking the Lord, indeed the battle becomes more dangerous in our ease for we are complacent. There aren't the enemy poking and prodding us, motivating us to be awake, to watch, to pray. When we look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4 and we see the context of persecution, do we have a sense of urgency? Do we read in chapter 4, verse 7, when it says, But the end of all things at hand, does that mean anything to us? Does it give us any hope? Does it motivate us to follow the commands given in the subsequent verses? How are we living? Who is it that will harm you? We saw that in chapter 3, verse 13. I wonder if we could even truly find anyone flesh and blood that would harm us. Years ago, two of my brothers spent some time in Russia, which was the former Soviet Union, and they met Christians, believers, who had endured persecution, suffering. They actually were in a home of one lady who had hidden Pastor Georgie Vins, some of you know him, and hidden, her, hidden him in her home. In fact, when she found out that the, we were near Alkhart, Indiana, where George Vins, after he was um, bartered and traded for a Soviet spy, um, settled down in Alcart, Indiana, she had to go write him a letter. But it was interesting in different contexts as they met different people. People who had been through fierce persecution, that there was a continued theme that was brought up it might horrify you to think that some of those of some of those who had endured soviet persecution pray that religious persecution would come to america we pray the exact opposite we pray that god would give us peace and and actually as we prayed earlier this morning uh, we are to pray for kings and all those that are in authority, so that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. So I, I don't quite know what I think of praying for persecution to come. But when you understand why they were praying that, it makes more sense. They were praying it because, from their perspective, American Christians were asleep. American Christians were lethargic. They weren't real and sincere even in talking to different, different individuals in modern times from China. And you find Christians there who speak of the persecution as a clear marker and indication of helping to identify who are true believers. Because if your life is in danger or your freedom is in danger, your job is in danger, even your, 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 your family your in danger, Uh, relationships and living together is in danger or threatened, you're going to have to really truly believe the gospel and what God has said to stand for it lest you risk all. And it's in a similar situation that Peter wrote to the church. and It's perhaps somewhat the reason why Peter is somewhat hard for us to understand or to identify with is because We can't see ourselves or put ourselves in some of the places and situations that the Christians whom this letter was originally written to found themselves under the constant continued threat of persecution, death, torture, separation from their family, enslavement, banishment. Even in our modern world, we read of stories of people being reconnected so many years later the idea and concept of that in this ancient world was unheard of. If you were sold into a galley ship, you were never seen again. You were gone, if you even survived your first voyage. There was so much at stake. Which is why when you read the phrase here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand you can see why that would have offered hope. Imagine if you were one hunted. Imagine if your family had been split up, either by death, by imprisonment, or by banishment. How much comfort would come from the phrase, but the end of all things is at hand. What that means is that it's close by, it's nearby. And you might be wondering, wait a minute, this was Peter. He, he was writing somewhere around 65, 63 AD. Uh, is the end at hand? Well, the at hand phrase there is also translated in our Bibles of the idea of it, of it drawing nigh. It, it speaks of the aspect and idea and of, of the intimates of something, of it being at any moment. And really, that's how we all ought to live. Whether we lived in the days of Peter, there in the first century, or we live now in the 21st century, do we live, do we live as if the end of all things is at hand? Is Christ anticipated? In our doctrine, He is. In our statement of faith, He is. Is he in our life anticipated? This afternoon, as you plan your week, as you go into your work week, is the soon return of Christ, his imminent return, his return anticipated is at hand? Is that the way we live? Again, is it just in our statement of faith, our code of doctrine, or is it how we live? If it's how we live, then there's some commands we will obey. The first one here in 1 Peter 7, Be ye therefore, knowing that the end is at hand, be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And what's that mean? Well, often in modern language, when we use the word sober, we use it for one who's not drunk, Right? Well, it does mean that, but it means more than that. You see, the reason why we use it for one who is not drunk is because when one is drunk, their mind is clouded. Their understanding, their perception of things is muddled. And so one who has, is not sober, they're, they're, they're fuzzy. They're, they're muddled, and they're thinking. And so the word here to be sober... Indeed, it wouldn't mean not to be drunk, but it means more than that. It means to think clearly. It means that when we see life, we have a perspective of it, and we're thinking people. We don't just coast. Life is not laissez-faire. Life is not just as it comes. We don't get up in the morning and in some ways, we're, we're like this. You know, when, when we have bills to pay, it, it causes us to get up and go to work, right, every day. Uh, some of us, if we didn't have the bills to pay, probably wouldn't get up and go to work. So that is there a motivation to us. Well, here, the return of Christ, the anticipation of the end of all things, of a drawing nigh, of a being at hand, ought to motivate us to think. And just as we have the motivation to get up and go to work to pay our bills, so also when we see the coming of Christ, when we anticipate or experience persecution, you see why it's, that motivation's not quite always there? Does it motivate us to live thinking with a sober mind? Clearly Thinking. How do we understand life? Do we perceive life? How do we engage life? So often, we are not necessarily... hmm. You know, there's different ways of being drunk. Some people get drunk on alcohol. Some people get drunk in amusement. The word amusement in our English language actually comes from the Greek, and it means to no think... That's not being sober. And how many ways and times do we just want to no-think? Ah, oh, muse, no-think, no-think. It's just, it's just too hard. No. We have to think. And we have to think with understanding. And I submit to you, that if we're not regularly spending time not just reading but understanding and applying god's word we're not thinking and if we are thinking we're not thinking right his word and our relationship with our god must be a priority for us to be sober there's other ways that we get ourselves drunk. We occupy ourselves in frivolous things. I'm not saying that things that are enjoyable are wrong. Interestingly, even in Bible Hour this morning, we learned of a king being rebuked for living in great wealth and luxury. And as rebuke, Jeremiah, as Jeremiah rebukes him, cites and acknowledges that his father, the godliest king since David, enjoyed feasting and drinking. He enjoyed things, but yet his perspective was right, whereas his son Jehoiakim's was not. Activities, things that we do, are they distracting us from having an understanding of life, an understanding of what is real, what is God's climax of the events, and what is the eternal perspective of life, and living that way? We need that we need so often to wake up. That's where the idea watch comes from. The idea watch comes from the idea of one who is a soldier who is standing guard and he's watching. Envision one who is standing up on a wall or up in a, up in a high tower and his job is to watch for enemy approaching. It's not just keeping the eyes open. It's an alertness. It's paying attention to what's going on. And again here in life, are we knowing that the end of all things is at hand? Are we alert and watching? And you know what? I love how it goes on and says unto prayer. Because I know some of you are like me. And in your alertness and watching, you're tempted to fret. You're tempted to worry. You're tempted to be fearful. Right? So we're in the command to watch. You might say, yeah, the reason I don't watch, I'm just tired of it, is because it just is too much on my brain. I'm with you. I'm with you. I agree with you. That's why it says unto prayer. Because as we have understanding, as we are thinking, as we are sober, as we are watching and alert as soldiers, we realize there's not much we can do. There's not much we can do. And so what do we need to do? When we are sober and watching, it is unto prayer. Because you see, there is one who can do something about all my fears, all my worries, all my concerns, all my doubts. He can take care of it all. So we sing the song, why worry? What's the rest of it? When you can pray. So as we're watching, let's not watch into worry, but watch into prayer. As Brother Abenauer shared with us last Sunday from Daniel of how eschatology has such a practical meaning to him in the aspect of knowing that in the end, Jesus wins, God wins. It's the motivation to him in this time to be sober, to watch, and to pray. Because the one who will bring about the end of all things is the one who can do something about anything that we fear, anything that we worry about. And so let us be sober. And let us watch unto prayer. But you know, it's more than just watching unto prayer and thinking right. It has an outflow. For it continues in verse 8. And above all things. Oh, that's a pretty big statement. Above all things. So now here, we've been given a pretty... Be sober and watch into prayer. That sounds pretty big, doesn't it? But now, he goes on and says, And above all things, what? Have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. So in our lives, we are commanded here now to be sober, to watch into prayer and to have fervent charity above all among ourselves. Do you have fervent charity above all among yourselves? What is charity? Charity is love. And not just fuzzy, feel-good love. Real, concrete, tangible love. Love that does the very best for others, love that seeks to know what God wants and to do what God does for others. Love, real love. And here, notice, it is fervent love. It's love that's on fire. Do we have that love for one another? You know, one of the aspects of love is knowing people. Do we know each other? I've been incredibly motivated through the ministry of Good News Club here at Harrison Elementary School. And if you notice the prayer requests from these children, I was looking at them and I said, hmm, some of them are, are, are quite, quite profound and, and in a way, in a sense, ways we, we can't identify with them. Hope oh, I gave my prayer list away. But you, you have that, that, some of those prayer requests. Christopher, could you bring me one? You know, we, we think of the, the one there of an aspect in which we have a hard time understanding and identifying with the child who asks that we pray that God would help her forgive those who killed her cousin. I think that's profound because sometimes we have roots of bitterness that spring up in our own hearts and lives. And you know what we do with them? We put them in a greenhouse. And we nurture them. Do you know what I mean? Hebrews speaks of beware lest any root of bitterness springing up in you defile you. Bitterness starts as a little 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 seed. It springs up and begins to grow. And it grows a deep and nasty root even before it starts to germinate through the surface. And sometimes we take bitterness and we put it in the greenhouse. We take care of it, we coddle it. We need to forgive. And sometimes we have trouble forgiving. Even the littlest of things. Much of love is a fervent forgiveness. For indeed, you see how it goes on and says, For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean that charity excuses, it doesn't mean that charity rationalizes, and it doesn't mean that charity hides. Sin that must be dealt with. But there's a lot of sin, especially the sins that we have against each other that love would take care of. The sideways comment, the non-thinking comment, the self-absorbedness of people. Some of these things need to be dealt with in different times, in different ways. But ultimately, through them all, is there a desire to forgive? Is there a fervent love and a love that is ready to cover a multitude of sins? I think of Jesus where he spoke of forgiveness and he said that if thy brother offend against thee, and you go to your brother and you rebuke him and he repent. Jesus said, thou shalt forgive him. He continued and he said, if your brother sinned against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day come to you and say, I repent. What did Jesus say? Or rather, what did Jesus command? You know, we know the Ten Commandments. but Do we know one of the harder ones to keep? Thou shalt forgive him, Jesus said. That's an outworking a fervent charity. A charity that lovers covers a multitude of sins. We need a fervent charity. There's so much more. We could preach a whole sermon on the fervency of charity. But really, I'd like to just read the words of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 13. Can you turn there with me? Because in there, it, it gives a summary of love. Love. Charity and what it is and what it is not. And it's profound. Remember, charity is a real, deep, genuine love. It actually begins in chapter 12 in the last verse, where it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Speaking of spiritual gifts in the church. Chapter 12 is all about the church, by the way. Interesting. This, this letter in 1 Peter is fervent charity among yourselves. Implying the Well, it's not implying. This letter is written to the saints scattered abroad throughout Asia Minor. And by extension to us. And all of this, speaking of the spiritual gifts in the church and the body, and, and, and in coming to the conclusion of the whole passage regarding the body, he says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet... Show I unto you a more excellent way. You can just hear him building up with, oh, you just can't wait to wait to hear what I have to tell you next. Show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, we often think of that as charity, philanthropy, giving of your goods, giving of your money to feed the poor, to help others. And he says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I even sacrifice my own body and have not charity, meaning I can do all those things and still not have charity, it profiteth me nothing. doesn't mean that charity is not manifested in these different ways. It just means that real true charity, real true love, genuine love is deeper and richer. There's a deeper component to it. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity's not going and looking at what others have and coveting it or or envious of the status or wealth or position of others. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. It doesn't brag and boast. It's not proud. It doth not behave itself unseemly. Yeah, this is bad manners. This is rudeness. This is what's not really in, in manners right. Seeketh not her own. It's not selfish. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. So oftentimes trouble comes because we, we, you know, it's it's not always wise to think the best of people, but it's also a big problem to always think the worst of people. Love doesn't think no evil. Rejoiceth love rejoiceth not in iniquity but rejoiceth in the truth. Charity beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. True charity, in spite of over and over violation, doesn't fail. Stand strong. But whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. This plays in with, in 1 Peter 4, 7, about being sober. But when I became a man, when I grew up, I put away childish things. Look here again in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians verse 12, how it parallels in with 1 Peter speaking of the end that is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. For now we see through a glass darkly. In this life we see what is to come hereafter faintly. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is... a For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. Follow after charity. When we recognize and understand that the end of all things is at hand, and when we are sober-minded, watching unto prayer. And above all things then, we will have a fervent charity among ourselves that will result in the covering of a multitude of sins. That's interesting also in the context of persecution. To prepare you. So say persecution comes. Say someone has to go into hiding. Say you have to hide someone in your home. I think of the story coming from Corey ten Boom in Holland um, during the days of the Nazi occupation of Holland in which they hid the Jews. Corrie wrote of the need for charity, fervent charity. You know why? Because as they had the strangers coming into their home and living in their home, there were all kinds of little things that were always irritable. All kinds of little things. Not only was it a different culture, but they were different people. They had different ways of doing things and people were selfish and everybody was compacted in. And you know what? They needed to have fervent charity and they needed to have love, charity, that covered a multitude of sins because if they hadn't blown up and harbored bitterness over all the sins that came in that home, they would have been found out a long time before. Disaster would have come. In their case and in our case, and in the case of persecution, what would happen if someone fleeing had no place to stay but in your home? And your little tiny home or big home doubled and tripled in size of the number of people? You'd have to have fervent charity because otherwise you'd go crazy. You need fervent charity among yourselves. Which leads in to verse 9. Be sober. Watch into prayer. Above all, Be fervent in charity. Now, verse nine, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Hospitality? What's that? Well, nowadays we have hospitality industry. Right, Derek? You work in the hospitality industry. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about the hospitality industry. In fact, to be candid, the hospitality industry has actually stolen from our church. And I mean churches in the body of Christ as a whole, in places where we have affluence, the ministry of hospitality. Derek gets to love strangers all the time, right? Every day, strangers, he gets to love. How many strangers do we love? How many strangers do we meet? Well, here, here, it says, "Use loving strangers, one to another, and oh, don't forget the last phrase. <laughs> Without grudging." <laughs> I don't like living in hotels, even for vacation. I just would rather have you know, if I could just move my house with me, you know, place to place. It, it sometimes loving strangers just is just like, oh, okay, I am done loving strangers. I'm sure you have that temptation every single day sometimes, Derek. Where it's just like, I am murmuring against these strangers. <laughs> and then he's praying without ceasing. But do we love strangers? Here, the, the kind, I mean, again, here, the aspect think of Paul and some of the situations of him fleeing. He fled to Damascus. You realize that the believers in Damascus had to show hospitality, a loving of strangers. In that case, Paul wasn't quite exactly a stranger, he was actually more so known as Tarsus. <sighs> He was the one who was previously persecuting them. And in fact, that's kind of why he came along and what he was going to do. And here now, you're loving strangers? Well, they won't be strangers for long if you use hospitality. It's about loving strangers, and here it is. We do this one to another, and it's not, it's not with grudging. It says it ought to be without grudging without complaining, without murmuring. Do we love strangers? Do we love strangers? Let's love strangers. Kids, ask your mom and dad how to love strangers. There's a certain way. Because there is still stranger danger. But yet sometimes us adults use stranger danger as an excuse to not use charity one to another without grudgingly. So beware, be careful. Learn, teach your children what it is and how it is. Verse 10 goes on and gives us an encouragement. Because in all of this, we may be, oh, this is hard. In fact, First Corinthians chapter 12 says of all these gifts, I show you a more excellent way, and then he goes into love. Verse 10 is intriguing, for it speaks of us as having received, received the gift. I believe that the gift here is the manifold grace of God. It's not the gift of hospitality, it's not the gift of charity, it's not the gift of sober-mindedness, and it's not the gift of watching unto prayer. It is the gift of God. In fact, the word is actually, in the Greek, paralleled word with the word grace. And every man hath received the gift, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word manifold there is an intriguing word. We could preach a whole sermon on that word. But it goes on and speaks of the variedness of it, the variety of it, and how it amplifies and, and, and manifests itself in our lives in so many different ways. We so commonly think of grace as that which has appeared to all men and to salvation, the grace of God being salvation, the gift of God. And that is a grace, a gift of God. God's grace is manifested in so many other ways. In the times in which we need to have that fervent charity and we don't feel like it, the gift is there. Are we stewards of that grace that will allow us to truly love? Because here's the key. If you're really going to have fervent charity, I'm going to give you a little hint here. You can't do it by yourself. You cannot have fervent charity in your own strength and in your own power. You don't have it in you. But as one who has received the manifold grace of God, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. We find out that God is love. We find out that God demonstrates his love to us through Christ Jesus, and we find out that God's love can flow through us to others. Fervent love is a fervent relationship with love. For love is not just a concept. Love is a person. Love is God. And so we must have a fervent relationship with God for His grace, His gift, His manifold grace, including love and everything else, can flow through us. That's the only way we're going to have fervent love among ourselves. It's the only way we're going to be able to forgive others. It's the only way we're going to be able to use hospitality without grudgingly. It is the only way, is if we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. We have a gift, and that gift is the grace of God. It is an, ab- it is an enablement. It is everything that we need to do what God would have us to do, including the impossible of having fervent love. And we have been given such a gift to steward. What's it mean to steward? It means that we... (laughs) It means a lot. It's a hard concept to explain. It, It really means that we have the grace of God. And now we have the privilege and the responsibility of using it and how we use it and when we use it That's called stewarding, maybe managing, but managing is too loose of a word. It's about using it as God has given it to us. And and God's grace is so amazing, so infinite, so great, so manifold are we using it as stewards. So So here, as every man hath received the gift, and if you today by faith have received the Lord Jesus Christ, you've received the gift, In fact, the gift is Jesus living inside of you and his graces flow through you. Even so, minister, serve the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Is God's grace making a difference in our lives not only for salvation, but in our fervent love for others and in our use of hospitality without grudgingly and in our forgiveness of others? If we are sober and watching unto prayer, By faith it is. But are we? Are we the stewards, or do we just neglect it? Or do we fail it? Hebrews uses that word. God's grace is given to us. What do we do with it? Let us be faithful stewards. From 1 Corinthians, it tells us that it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. Interesting. Faithful. Full of faith. It's an aspect of depending upon God, believing God, and also demonstrating faithfulness in executing and using, and in here, this case, the manifold grace of God. Verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever, amen. Bringing it to a conclusion here. You see all of these things. Be sober, watch into prayer. Above all, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Forgiveness, use hospitality one to another without grudgingly. Minister, being stewards of the grace of God. And then when you speak, speak as the oracles of God. I think this is important, especially among the church and context of life. We need to be careful about just spewing our own opinion. When we speak, do we speak with the authority as the oracles of God? You know one reason why I think in Christian circles it's so troublesome when people speak sometimes? is because they're speaking their own opinion as if it's the oracles of God. You know, we as brethren and sisters in the Lord need to know the oracle of God. And when we share and speak, let us be speaking His word and filter every one of our opinions and philosophies and opi- all of it through the filter of His word. And so when we speak, may it be the oracles of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't share any other opinions, but we need to always be coming back here and allowing this to change our opinions. Speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. That's intriguing to me. Because it answers both the highly talented individual and the one who doesn't perceive themselves as having any talents. So we've received the manifold grace of God, and here now, let us, let a man who's ministering, ministering means serving another, and, and here we see this. It says, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Now, You might be a highly talented person. And do you know what this verse applies to you in? Hey, don't do it in your own strength. Don't do it in your own brilliance. Do it according to the grace you've received from God. So often, highly talented people become highly corrupt in their accomplishments because their focus is on themselves and they're doing it in their own strength and for their own glory. So if you're highly talented, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and minister. Minister! Minister according to the ability that He gives you. Depend upon Him. Trust in Him in all that you're doing. Now you might be one who says, yeah, well, I can't do anything. (laughs) The the, the reverse is true. Or the same is true. Minister. As of the ability which God giveth. All through Scripture, there have been men called upon by God to do great things. That, When you really considered it from a human perspective, they were grossly in, unable to do what God had called them to do. But yet they were able to do it because God gave them the ability. God graced them the ability to do it. And so, really, again, it's us as stewards being, Lord, here am I. Use me. Be very, very, very careful of ever using the excuse, well, I just can't do that. Start by asking the Lord if he wants you to do it. And if he wants you to do it, he will give you, he will grace you the ability to do it. And here's why why this is so important both for both extremes and every one of us in the middle. Why? Because in the end, it's that God, look with me here at verse 11, that God in all things may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, he's the greatest grace, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever, amen. The end of all things is at hand. There is a forever and an ever. And are we living according as ministers and stewards of the manifold grace of God? For the glory of God forever and ever is not just about the here and now. Is not just about right now and the struggle and pain I'm dealing with now. It's about the glory of God forever and ever and ever. So, knowing that the end of all things is at hand, it's nearby, it's drawing nigh, be sober. Watch unto prayer. Watch, be alert. Above all things, have fervent charity. Use hospitality. Minister as stewards of the manifold grace of God. Speak when you speak as the oracles of God. And all that you do, do it according to the ability that God has given you so that God in all things might be glorified. Gracious God, we bow before you with humble gratitude and thanksgiving for giving to us your word. May your people wake up. May we all be sober and watch unto the end. Father, may we take into consideration the reality of being stewards of your graces, your manifold grace. Through Christ Jesus, the one whom we are united with, one with, the one in whom our hope of life is and every part of us are. Lord Jesus, may we live in the constant and continued reality that the end of all things is nigh and that you alone may receive the glory, the honor, the praise, everything, everything, for it is all according to your grace. And all of our works done in our own strength and in our own way and according to our own brilliance and intellect will just burn up and be of nothing. But those things done according to your graces, your manifold grace, will be tried and when tried come forth as gold. And so, Father, may we live sober, May we watch not unto fretting, not unto worry, but unto prayer. Hoping in you, coming to you, trusting in you. Lord Jesus, I also pray here this morning for each one who's not received the gift of salvation, that grace that's appeared to all men. Lord Jesus, may each one here today believe may your spirit move among us that each one of us might have hope we give ourselves now to you as we seek you and glorify you we are your vessels and we bow before your name in your name i pray amen